Good morning. It is a privilege to be with you, and it is a great honor just to be able to be here to preach God's Word this morning. I'm so grateful for Southern Seminary and what it has meant in my life, and uh, just truly blessed to be here, to stand here. Uh, Dr. Aiken, thank you, first of all. I'm so grateful for you, so grateful for you and Carrie. He is such a great friend to me and such a blessing. Uh, also to our church, incredible disciple makers and leaders. Also, of course, want to express gratitude, though he's not here, to Dr. Moeller, as we all are. I'm incredibly thankful for the influence he's had on my life and the opportunity to be here. And Highview, your checks will come in the mail for all showing up. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love you all. Thank you for your encouragement. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn it to Exodus chapter 33. We'll spend some time with Moses this morning in a story of his life. We'll be in part of it. 33 and also part of 34. If we were to take a moment this morning, we were to look back when we first believed, I can almost guarantee that it would be characterized by a holy simplicity, that we just loved Jesus. When your heart is open to the gospel, you are consumed with him and his word. You just want to talk about him. You just want to walk with him. If we were to fast forward when the Lord Jesus returns, doubtlessly, when we experience glorification in a perfect way, it will be characterized by holy simplicity where we will be perfectly satisfied just to see his face, to love him. But in between those two moments is a war, and we know it. It's a war to, ke to keep your heart set in a position of simplicity just to seek Christ's face, to love him. There are a million reasons for your attention to be displaced, for your focus to be corrupted, and to miss the delight it is that we just love him as our savior. I love this moment in Moses's life because he seems to do this very thing in a great dilemma. And that is to set his heart to seek the face of the Lord. Even as we just read out of Psalm 27, what David said. And what's even more encouraging is it of course comes after that great debacle of the golden calf, such presumptuous sin and idolatry. But even then it was not before, but after God in such a miraculous way reveals his person like never before in all of his grace and compassion toward us. Would you stand with me? I want to read to you beginning Exodus chapter 33, verse 12, as Moses takes up his discourse and begins to petition after this great failure. This is the word of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up 
from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask in the name of Jesus for one thing, that you would set our hearts to seek the face of your son, that you would grab hold of us by the power of your spirit, and we would so delight, Lord, in who you are that we cannot take our attention off of your mercy. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these moments together, and I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If we were to read the beginning of chapter 33, it begins with God articulating the plan going forward for the conquest of Canaan. God promises at the beginning of 33 that none of their enemies will be able to stand against them. They will inhabit the land. They will conquer. They will enter into all that prosperity. His angel will go with them. Yet, you know the scripture. The Lord says, I will not go up among you lest I consume you. For you're a stiff-necked people. And the people mourn. When they heard that, quote, disastrous word, they took off all their ornaments and they were broken. They understood to a degree the weight of this word. And even more so, the man Moses, who hadn't even been an actual part of the incident of idolatry, articulates the dilemma in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. That's not completely true. He just said he's gonna send the angel with him, but Moses, I believe, articulates it in this way for the very reason of showing and expressing his dissatisfaction with the plan. In a reverent way, of course, but he doesn't want a representative. He longs for the Lord. He wants him. And the question I often ask in so many moments of scripture, but especially this one, God knows well in his sovereignty that he will accompany them into the land. So why is it he presents this plan? And it would seem to be the case that it is the presentation of this plan and the dilemma of Moses that draws so deeply from the heart of Moses. God seems to initiate this way to actually bless him. And is that not so often the case? That it is great dilemma that gives birth to the greatest prayers and pursuits of the heart. Moses, we might say, has a double concern or a double desire. One is intercessory. He is interceding on behalf of God's covenant people. You see it in verse 12. You say, bring up this people. And then at the end of verse 13, consider too that this nation is your people. But we would be missing it if we think that's only the only concern. This is a personal concern as well. Moses and his personal relationship with the Lord is what drives his intercession in the first place. We see his concern and his desire and we see first the basis of his appeal, just to be clear. You have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. His appeal is what our only appeal is. And we know this, it is grace. There is no negotiating 
with the God of Sinai. There is no bargaining with him. We come by the blood of Jesus and we dare not come any other way. But cognizant of it, Moses brings before the Lord three petitions. That's what I want to look at today. Three petitions and then an encounter. The first petition begins in verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Certainly, if Moses would have stopped at saying, Lord, show me your ways, that would have been a very average prayer, a typical prayer. Is that not the way that you and I tend to pray in difficulty, Lord? You need to show me what to do right now. I don't know what's going on. God, show me your ways. I need a, I need a word from you, Lord. And it's not that those are bad petitions or questions, but they might be. What's the motivation? Because Moses' Moses's motivation is very clear. He is not asking for the ways of the Lord as a means to his own self-oriented ends. Show me now your ways that I may know you. Lord, I want to know you. We want to walk in your favor. This initially is the prayer of someone who is after the heart of the Lord, who is seeking his face. David actually much later in history in Psalm 25 verses four and five seems to pray a prayer derived from this very moment. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me why. For you are the God of my salvation, Lord. I love you. I want to know you. I want to know your ways. What is our motivation even as we come before the word today? Moses is in a unique place, obviously. The revelation of God's word is not complete. Matter of fact, he would write a lot of it. So that's in process to a degree. But for us with the completion of the canon, how do we come before the scripture? Do we come to gratify curiosity? Do we come to garner strength for influence? Do we come to prepare to teach something, to preach something, or do we come because we want to encounter the living God? May we not make the pharisaical error of seeking the scriptures because in them we think is eternal life, failing to see, they testify about Jesus. It is him that we want to encounter. The petition is so unique. Look at the bookends. If I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. That's interesting. Moses knows I only receive anything because of the favor of the Lord, but I want your favor, Lord, so that I can walk in your favor. He doesn't think that in some way he can merit God's favor. That would empty that word of its meaning in its entirety of grace, unmerited, this kindness of the Lord. What Moses is intending to communicate is, Lord, show us your ways so that we can know you, Lord. We want to obey your word. We want to walk with you because Moses knows already when they walk with the Lord, they experience his power. They have seen it, have they not? He wants to walk in that favor. The promise that as we walk, he is with us. And how much more certain in the new covenant? 
When I read these words, I think of John 14, 21. He who has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him and manifest myself to him. Is there something more exciting than that? I don't know. <laughs> to walk in the presence of the Lord, the indwelling spirit, of course, in the context of John 14, 16. Might it be the case today that someone in this room, maybe many in this room, have, have you lost that holy anticipation of what it means to stick your neck out in faith and obey the Lord? That he is with you. We must step in first, longing for his face into a fresh, holy obedience of great simplicity. Knowing that we get to walk in his favor, delight in him. We're not seeking great things for ourselves. We're seeking a great king. So many times in scripture, it was not because people were looking for great moments or great things of the Lord, but because they were just obedient. Enoch walked with God and he was not. God took him. David wasn't looking for Goliath. He was simply bringing cheese, cheese to the battlefield, obeying his dad. Simeon and Anna weren't in Luke 2 frantically searching for the Messiah. They were simply committed, walking devout in the Holy Spirit, and they beheld him. Will this be our commitment? Lord, I want to come before your ways. Lord, I want to know you, Jesus, because listen to the way he answers. Verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. <sighs> Good news, case closed, right? An honest reading of the text would see what Moses says next as a surprising interjection. The way he voices it is aggressive even. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, I don't know, but maybe if Moses would have had an assistant up on that mountain, knowing the thin ice that they were on after that great incident of idolatry, he might've said, hey, Moses, God said, yes, let's, you know, let's back it up a little bit. He's holy. Let's not press the envelope. But no, Moses doubles down. But actually, the more you begin to contemplate it, the more it begins to make sense. As you look across the witness of scripture, even as you think about your own Christian walk, when you taste and see who Jesus is, you don't stay where you are. You're not satisfied where you have been. It only whets the appetite. It only revs up the engine to see prayer answered. To see the Lord in his faithfulness, in his sovereignty, in his providence, to see the Lord saving sinners, it stirs us up. And it's for that very reason that as you look at Moses, the petitions increase in intensity. They become bolder and bolder. I know, I hope it's the case that every single person in this room, your, your desire is to be like that Psalm 42, dear, thirsty your soul thirsting for the presence of the Lord. And of course, sometimes God gives supernatural delight in him, but often we know this is something that's cultivated. And if we've not stepped into that simplicity of obedience simply because we want to know Jesus, are we really going to long to pray like this, to be with him? 
But when we do, we see the world differently. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Lord, he is saying, I would rather be in the harshness of this desert in the severity of conditions. I would rather die out here and know that I have you in your favor than to go in all the prosperity of Canaan and be without. This is a prayer of someone longing for him who loves him as he intercedes for the people of Israel. We know what it's like simply to be loved by our children, some of us. This week, one of my daughters came up to me and I was in a conversation and she put her arm on my shoulder. She was indicating, of course, she had something to say. And then her little sister came along and followed her and she put her hand on my arm as well. And the older one looks and says, what do you, what do you want? You know, what, what, what do you need to say? And my little one said, I don't need to say anything. I just love daddy. Yeah, I tried to pick my heart up off the floor. Okay, you know, you know what I'm trying to do? Baby, come here, come here. I love you. <laughs> you know, the Lord loves us. And Moses has just said, second petition, I want to be with you. He's first said, Lord, I want to know you. But now he's saying, Lord, I want to be with you. God has promised them a dwelling place in Canaan. But Moses, I believe, has been learning that our home doesn't have GPS coordinates. Our home is a person. He would, I mean, he would write, the eternal God, he is our dwelling place. I wanna be with you, Lord. And then he says, why? Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. Moses knows there have been other leaders of other great nations. Moses knows other nations have conquered their enemies. Moses knows that other nations have lived in great prosperity. He knows that will not make them distinct. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. This is very hard, isn't it? to not conceive of what makes us distinct in a worldly way, in a fleshly way? And is that not most difficult at times in ministry? What's gonna make me distinct? What's gonna make me special? If I'm able to reach this place, if I'm able to obtain that position, if I end up there, if I'm in that circle of people, if people would listen to me, none of those things make you distinct. He makes us distinct because he makes us holy. Think about it. Moses has just been presented promise of a conquest of a great nation and ultimate prosperity. And he's just said, I don't want it if it doesn't involve you. He, he knows it has no worth apart from the Lord. What is your purpose? To know him? To be with Jesus? To love him? God answers in the affirmative. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. 
for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. But at this point, you know, there's one more. Moses said, please show me your glory. Did he even know what he was saying? Show me your glory. Now, yes, Moses interceding for the people wants an affirmation, a tangible, observable experience of some sort of the word of the Lord to know that he will indeed be with them. He longs for that affirmation. And that's true on behalf of Israel. But again, we would be missing it if we didn't see that this is something that Moses wants personally. Every single one of his petitions have been in the first person, haven't they? Show me now your ways, I wanna know you. Lord, if you won't go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses said, please show me your glory. In one way or another, the third petition seems to be Moses saying, Lord, I wanna see you. And the reason I put that before you is because God answers saying, you can't see my face, twice. Don't know what all was going on in the heart and mind of Moses, but it's clear he wants to be with the person of the Lord. Show me your glory. This is a sanctified prayer, isn't it? He didn't start out talking to the Lord like this in Exodus chapter three. In Exodus three, when he encountered that burning bush, he hid his face. In the presence of God who is holy, he was scared to look at God. And now, 30 chapters later, he's begging to see the Lord's face. Show me your glory. Moses has seen the burning bush. He's seen the plagues. He's seen the Passover. He has seen the Red Sea. He's seen provision in the wilderness. He has seen Mount Sinai mount, melt like the wax on a candle. And yet, he says, show me your glory. It's almost if he's saying, Lord, I've seen what you can do, but I, I wanna see you. Show me your glory. This is a dangerous prayer. I love what Spurgeon wrote of this moment. He said, Moses could not have asked for more. Why, it is the greatest petition that man ever asked of God. I'm sure he would say outside the prayers of Christ himself. Seems to be the greatest stretch of faith that I have either heard or read. I am astonished that Moses himself should have been bold enough to supplicate so wondrous a favor. Surely, after he uttered this desire, his bones must have trembled, his blood curdled in his veins, and his hair must have stood on end. Show me your glory. Is this our longing? Is it not a bit of a fearful thing to pray this way? These kinds of prayers, in some way it's to put your whole life at stake. Moses knows the power of this almighty God, but he knows he's good, he knows he's holy, he knows the bush wasn't consumed in that fire. We can be fearful because we struggle to believe God's good if he shows up. 
We struggle to pray this way. Lord, show me your glory. Let me walk with you. I want to be holy as you are holy. Do whatever is required, oh God, to make me holy because we know he will do it. We know he will. But look at what God says, verse 19. I will make all my goodness, all my goodness, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That is good news. He could have said anything. I'm gonna show you my goodness. Yes! The goodness of the Lord. Now, let's we experience his goodness. We experience goodness in his creation with the crisp warmth of that sun yesterday in the middle of winter. You can almost smell burgers coming in the summer, kids playing in the pool, what it means to have friendship and love. Those are good things of God's creation. This is the goodness of God himself. But maybe there are objections. We're not gonna experience the Lord like this. Well, it's true. I can pretty much guarantee you probably not gonna encounter the Lord at Sinai. I don't mean it that way. But can we not walk with him? Is he not with us? Or maybe the objection is, I, I just, I'm not like Moses. He was different. But if Elijah had a nature like ours, did not Moses have a nature like ours? Make no mistake, and it's found in the next line, Moses isn't here because of his righteousness. He's not here because of his own spiritual gumption. Look at what God says. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It was a little reminder, Moses, the only reason you're here at all is because of my goodness. We know Paul picks that up in Romans 9, but it's such an encouragement. Why? It's because God initiated with Moses and God sanctified him to this point just as God initiated with us. If his spirit is within you, you can approach Please, Lord, he says, show me your glory. So the Lord gives him the plan. But, verse 20, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have Passed by, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Whew. He's coming. Are we ready for him to come? How gracious is the Lord not just to reveal himself, but to conceal him from perishing? He's so good. He's so kind. You're not going to see all of me, Moses. You couldn't handle that. So he gives Moses instructions. Very simple. Verse one, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Is there not more goodness that God is the one who upholds his covenant? God is the law fulfiller. Praise the Lord. Bring up new tablets and be ready. Love that. Be ready by morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. He gives warning. He gives instructions. He doesn't demand anything great of Moses. Moses doesn't have to accomplish something. He's revealed his ways. He's revealed instructions and said, come up. And you know what happens. 
Verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now, friends, that's anthropomorphic in one sense, but it's literal yet in another sense, isn't it? God is spirit, yet he is a person. He's coming, he's standing there. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There is not a moment quite like this in the rest of Old Testament scripture. A moment of revelation like this, which in one sense is so sensory, It's experiential, yet it's based upon knowledge. It's based upon the truth, the word. As he proclaims his name, the character of the Lord. This is exactly what Moses needed. This was the ultimate certification. He's going with them. He's going to be with them. He's gracious and merciful. He's so kind and compassionate. They have his presence And this moment is cemented in history, not just as a remembrance of great revelation, but as a principle to all those who would draw near to this king. He is merciful and gracious, calling us in, drawing us in, revealing it's never been first about our commitment to him. It's always been about his commitment to us. Moses wasn't there because of his righteousness. He was there because this God is merciful and gracious. There's so many reasons not to say, Lord, show me your glory. Distractions, he is holy. Sin, he is merciful and gracious. Presumptuous sin, willful sin. Repeated sin, Lord, I've failed again. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Justice and truth, he atones. You don't encounter this Lord and leave the same. Verse eight tells us, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Because this is the ultimate goal, isn't it? Because when you've sought the face of the Lord, you end up on yours. Moses would never be the same. You know what happens. He will come down from the mountain, his face literally shining, and the people were scared of him. Because of the glory of having been in the presence of God. What a blessing to be so weakened, yet strengthened, humbled, yet exalted, fearful, yet joyful to be changed in his presence. That's the only place we're changed. But that moment would fade, wouldn't it? The glory of that covenant would fade. Moses' face would cease to shine. Israel would break the law again. They would be cast out of the land. And Moses wouldn't even enter Canaan. 
You know, we might say in one sense, he didn't even have his final request fully answered. Show me your glory. It was only answered partially. But if you know the Lord, in his infinite mercy and grace, he never leaves those who seek his face dissatisfied and unanswered. It would be a long time in human perspective, about 1,500 years, but in God's mind, a moment, but a day that passed. When a unique man from Nazareth would take three of his closest friends and they would go on a hiking trip and they would go up a mountain and they would climb that mountain and they would get to the top and the fear of the father fell upon that mountain as his voice boomed like thunder and clouds descended there reminiscent of a moment so long before and who else would stand there but Moses and Elijah. Yes, they're standing there because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. Yes, Peter, James, and John are there because this was a pivotal moment in Revelation and New Testament history in preparing for the building of the church. Yes, but friends, we would be missing it if we didn't connect the dots. If we didn't bring these moments together Moses experienced this too. And surely he must have struggled to catch his breath when he realized he was standing face to face with the answer of every single petition. Lord, I wanna know your ways so that I can know you. And there he was, the way, the truth, and the life. He said, Lord, I wanna be with you. And who else? but Emmanuel, the transcendent one, come to dwell among us. He said, Lord, show me your glory. <laughs> he didn't see it in 34, but he saw it in Matthew chapter 17. Is it not written, Matthew chapter 17, verse one, Jesus's face, his face was transfigured before them and it shone like the sun. And there Moses stood before the very radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And there in Jesus, John saw him. It's why he wrote, we have seen his glory, the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And here we have in Jesus, the great mystery of God's covenant name unfolded before us in a person. Grace is not merely propositions or a commodity. It's a person and he has a name and his name is Jesus. And he is good. He is so good abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is the law fulfiller. You know, he kept the law. He is the Lord God who doesn't pardon iniquity. Iniquity was not pardoned. Iniquity was placed upon him. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. He bled, he died. The very God of Sinai bled and suffered under the wrath of the Father for our sin. 
And he has been raised up from the dead and he is full of mercy and grace to all those who would long for him. Don't you think for a moment this is far off from you. Don't you think for a moment he is inaccessible to you. Is it not written of our very salvation? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You need only long for him. The woman with the blood disease said, if I can just touch his garment. Bartimaeus said, if I can just get his attention. Zacchaeus said, if I could just see him, it is Jesus we seek. His grace, his mercy, it is Jesus we long for. We ought to all say today, Lord, you have said, seek your face, your face, oh Lord Jesus, do I seek. And we can know this with confidence. He will appear and we shall see him. And when we see him, we shall be as he is. Set your heart to seek the face of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we cannot approach but by your son, but we ask, please, Show us your glory, make us holy, conform us to his image, stir our affections that we might long for you, Jesus. We can't wait to be with you. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.